Welcome to the Days for Girls podcast, a show about breaking barriers for women and girls around the world. I'm your host, Jessica Williams, Chief Communications Officer at Days for Girls International. At Days for Girls, we believe in a world where periods are never a problem. We are on a mission to shatter the stigma and limitations associated with menstruation by increasing access to sustainable period products and menstrual health education for all people with periods. Today's episode is with Inga Winkler. Inga is an associate professor in international human rights law at the Central European University in Vienna, Austria. She is also the director of the Working Group on Menstrual Health and Gender Justice at Columbia University. Her research focuses on socioeconomic rights and gender justice with a particular interest in the intersections of menstruation, culture, and representation. Her research builds on her extensive experience in the UN system, and she seeks to engage with policymakers on menstrual health. In today's episode, we'll be talking about her contributions to the Palgrave Handbook on Critical Menstruation Studies. I learned so much from today's conversation, so I cannot wait to share this with you too. Thank you for listening. Now let's go on to the show. So Inga, welcome to the Days for Girls podcast. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am so excited to talk to you because when I first started working at Days for Girls, everyone said, well, one of the best places to go is the Palgrave Handbook of Critical Menstruation Studies. And I was like, okay. So I go online and I was like, whoa, this this book is huge. And um, I thought I'll never get through this. So this is going to be really fun because I think you wrote a few chapters and you can maybe break some of it down for us and help us not be so overwhelmed by the book itself, because it is a really comprehensive look at menstruation and menstrual health. So really excited to talk to you today. Well, I'm excited too. And I mean, I can relate to it. I mean, if we if we're doing this on video, I would show you the actual hard copy of the book. And uh, I mean, it serves really well as a doorstop. I mean, it, it's quite, quite a volume. So I mean, we have more than a 1000 pages, 72 chapters. But I think what we were when we were editing it, what we we're most excited about is really the diversity in the handbook. And uh, there are more than 134 contributors from more than 30 different countries. And I think really, I mean, it's hard to explain kind of. And I mean, I can relate to that feeling of being slightly overwhelmed when you first look at it. But I mean, our idea with the handbook, and I really want to credit our lead editor, Chris Bobel, who kind of came up with the entire framing and the idea of producing uh, this massive volume. But our idea was really to approach and explore menstruation from from almost every possible angle we could think of. I mean, we're well aware that there are issues we have missed, and I'm happy to talk about the gaps and what others should be doing in, in a second edition. But I think our idea was really to, to look at menstruation through different lenses, through different angles, through different disciplines. I mean, whether it's historical, political, kind of the embodied nature of of menstruation, but also its cultural, religious and social meanings, looking at health, looking at kind of economic perspectives, also bringing in artistic and literary ideas about menstruation and, and so much more. So I don't think... 
anyone should be overwhelmed because, I mean, no one has to read the entire handbook. I mean, it's perfectly made for kind of the, the picking and choosing. And I would think of it as, as kind of your, your critical companion for anyone who's interested in menstruation to, to kind of advance the field as a such and really establish critical menstruation studies as a field of study, that it's worthy as, as a field of study and a really rich field, but also acknowledging that there's a lot we don't know, that there's a lot where, where we struggle with certain myths and fallacies uh, and need to, need to expose those and really keep asking those questions. And I think the way we've we've done that is really approach it through deliberate diversity in, in content and in experiences, having different authors and having different formats. I think what you so often see in in the academic literature more, more broadly is that it's all research pieces that are of somewhat inaccessible. And what we thought would be great to do with the handbook is to also include other kinds of knowledge. I think the the chapters, I mean, that I personally like the most are the personal narratives where people speak from their personal experience. But just as uh, as much, I mean, there are several policy and practice nodes. There are so-called transnational engagements where people come together, speak from different kind of perspectives about the same issues. Uh, I mean, there's one on menopause. There's another one that deals with menstrual education. There's another one that kind of deals more with policy perspectives, another one on, on cultural and religious meanings of menstruation. So I think it, these relatively short pieces, these different perspectives that I hope, uh, I mean, it's easy to say for me, but that I hope make it a lot more accessible and kind of take away this dauntingness of having over over a thousand pages because the individual chapters they are all pretty short so i would i would encourage any listener to to just start anywhere i mean there's no particular order start with anything you are interested in and just have a look at it awesome <laughs> thanks for breaking that down that is really good advice you know and i've looked through the handbook uh, pretty extensively and i i agree with you i think that's probably the best way to do it so kind of diving into some of your uh, work with the book. You you actually wrote chapter two and you wrote in the introduction that you believe menstruation is fundamental. And you say, quote, menstruation is so much more than a normal biological process for many people. In fact, it's fundamental. And I'm curious, like what you mean by that? Can you talk about that? What do you mean when you say menstruation is fundamental? Yeah, yeah, happy, happy to do so. I think it's really about, I mean, it's starting with that biological process. And I think even, even, I mean, if we were at the point where we would just accept menstruation as a normal biological, a normal physiological process, I mean, that would be a huge step forward. But it's really just the just the starting point. And I mean, I come to, to the study of menstruation from, from a human rights perspective, which is which is my my background. I'm I'm now a human rights professor. And so, I mean, in my work, I always consider menstruation through the lens of human rights and the way it impacts. Uh, 
uh, human rights. And I think there, I mean, obvious, there are obvious linkages with, I mean, between menstrual health and, and the right to health. But I think it, it's so much more than that. I mean, considering the right to education, freedom of religion or belief, I mean, safe and healthy working conditions, rights related to, to culture, to engage in public life, obviously human rights related to, to equality and, and non-discrimination. So I think all of those are are impacted by menstruation in various different ways. And I mean, let me give you, give you some examples to, to kind of break break that down. I mean, if you think about the, the context of, of work, there was, there was a case in, in Georgia in the US where a call center operator uh, was fired because of, of their heavy bleeding that, uh, and I'm using air quotes, that soiled the carpet. So I think there is this relationship between, I mean, we have this biological process, but it's so much more because of what we ascribe to it. And if you think about other um, other instances, and some of those are dealt with in, in the handbook, I mean, if you think about the, the context of prisons or jails, where we over and over again hear about uh, prison guards who withhold menstrual products, I mean, similar instances in various kinds of shelters, or another chapter in the handbook deals with personal with disabilities who are being sterilized and again air quotes um, because it makes it easier to manage menstruation so i think there are all these standard expectations that put menstruation in a social cultural context and ultimately really make menstruation fundamental because it is about about power relations it is about the power of that of that prison guard it is about the power of judges to either authorize sterilizations or not it is about the power of teachers in how they share or withhold information it's about the power of healthcare providers and how they engage with menstruators whether they gaslight them or whether they actually engage with them and take them seriously it's about the power of employers to either label people who menstruate as as hysterical as many of us i assume have experienced or actually support them and accommodate menstrual needs so i think recognizing those power relations is is absolutely key and that is what makes menstruation about so much more than just the just the biological process just the bleeding it's, it's really about so much more than than blood and I think in, in that context, and I mean, what we try to do in that initial section of the handbook is to consider the, the lived experiences of many different menstruators and really recognize that the lived experience vary depending on, on what religion or culture or political system uh, or caste or geographical place, uh, where you live, what context you, you live. And then it's often this intersection of, say, gender and disability or gender and religion that determine how, how you experience menstruation. And I think taking those experiences, not just taking them seriously, but really valuing them and seeking to understand them 
I think that adds a lot to, to how we understand menstruation and then also seek to address menstruation. You know, it's interesting. I, I've said this before on the podcast, but I'll say it again because I think it's important to emphasize this point. And it's that, you know, when I came on board at Days for Girls, I had been doing a lot of work around women's equality and empowering women leaders. And it just had never occurred to me that menstruation was fundamental to the inequality that we experience. And so I was shocked that like that had not come across my radar, but once it did, it was so obvious. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. is that what kind of what you're talking about when you say it's fundamental? Yeah, I think you're you're really not not alone in that because I think menstruation, I mean, definitely was, and I would say still is in many contexts. I mean, it's so invisible, and we don't really we don't really realize. I mean, that insidious power of menstrual stigma because we are we are socialized not to not to talk about menstruation we are socialized to to keep it hidden uh to to kind of deal with it manage it in in private and i mean then I mean, that's just the, the management part of it. But if you think about, if you experience menstrual pain, I mean, the number of times you're you're told to just power through, deal with it, uh, not make such a fuss about it. I think we are all told to to just not not think about it too much, keep it invisible. And I think that is why so many people, I mean, even even those who work on on human rights, gender equality, gender justice, women's leadership, women's empowerment, don't really consider menstruation. But I would also say that once you start thinking about it, it kind of becomes so obvious and it kind of clicks. Then you start noticing it, uh, how it really impacts every, every facet of life, I would say. Great. I'm glad I'm on the right track. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that you say, um, you go on to say is that, um, menstruation unites the personal and the political, the intimate and the public and the physiological and the sociocultural. Can you break that down for me? Maybe give me a couple examples by what you mean with that statement, I think what we tend to focus on is always the first bit, kind of the personal, the intimate, and the, the physiological. But then again, I think that menstruation is, is so much more than that. And I think as any feminist knows, I mean, the personal is political. Um, so I think it forces us, I mean, thinking about menstruation in that way, I mean, it forces us to to ask some questions, uh, I mean, ourselves and others and people working in the space. I mean, why why do you think or why do we think that, that menstruation is something that should be kept invisible? I mean, why should it be private? And why do we even, I mean, if we say, I mean, it's something so natural, then why why do we consider it so, so embarrassing? And why is a period stain so much more embarrassing than than a coffee stain. So I think asking ourselves all all those questions, I mean, really um, forces us to think about gendered social norms and our perceptions of of modesty and our perception of what it means to, to manage menstruation. And I think that then can inform our understanding of of what menstruation should be and really consider it more public, that more political space. And I mean, of course, I, I... 
acknowledge and I mean I very much agree that that menstrual health is something that's that's deeply personal and of course it depends on on individual behavior it depends on individual habits and actions all that's true but that doesn't make menstrual health any less of a human rights issue and looking at it from from the perspective of of the political and what's the role of states in something that is so personal so intimate it really changes how we how we think about menstruation and from the perspective of of governments i mean that really means that they they must ensure that they don't disadvantage menstruating individuals. So that would mean, for instance, not taxing menstrual products that, that people rely on because they are a basic uh, necessity or just taxing them at the level of, of other basic necessities, treating themselves um, the same as, as groceries, for instance. It means providing menstrual materials in, in particular settings such as prisons or jails or detention centers and maybe most most importantly it also means creating this enabling environment and i mean what i mean by that is challenging all these power relations that we that we talked about that that persist and that continue to to stay with us uh, because menstrual stigma persists. So I mean that would mean promoting uh, menstrual literacy, really improving uh, menstrual health education, taking that seriously, promoting workplaces that accommodate menstrual needs, and tackling gender stereotypes, and really trying to understand how stigma works, and then uh, dismantling that stigma. And I mean, obviously, those those kind of human rights obligations, they they seem very, very vague and they seem very indirect and they're not as tangible as, say, providing menstrual products to people. But I think those least visible, those least tangible obligations are probably the most important ones, because that is kind of where where menstrual stigma and the invisible menstrual stigma really persists. So um, yeah, long story short, I mean, what I'm trying to say, it's more than just the personal and the intimate, but it's really something, I mean, that we have to take into the political sphere and that we have to think about in political and kind of public policy, public policy terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess the other dimension is really moving from, from this idea of something that's only biological that's only physiological to to also acknowledging that menstruation really has lots of social cultural meaning or religious meanings for for people and i mean there i'm i'm really i'm really struggling with kind of how how that narrative and how that's developing i mean i'm super excited that menstruation is gaining more traction and is gaining more more attention in the media because from kind of the point where where i started about uh, where i started working on menstruation uh, more than 10 years ago i mean we're a far cry from from that point and i mean it's so exciting not to be that lonely anymore not to get all the weird puzzled faces so i mean let me start by saying we're really excited about more attention to menstruation but i think as soon as we start talking about cultural and religious 
practices related to, to menstruation, there is this tendency to, to label those as restrictive, as oppressive, as something that uh, subjugates women and, and girls. And that has really devolved in, evolved into this dominant and singular narrative of, of menstrual oppression. And I think there's a lot that we lose in, in doing that. And we completely lose the dimension of women and girls engaging in their religion, engaging in, in certain cultural practices. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I certainly don't mean to, to condone or endorse anything that would be considered harmful practices. But I think there's a huge spectrum of what culture and religion looks like to people. And I think we have to, to nuance our, our understanding and really to, to center women's and girls and any menstruators agency in how they think about their menstrual uh, practices and what they want to engage in. And I mean, there are two pieces of work that I think might be might be really interesting. I mean, one is an article that I wrote with, with Professor Chris Bobel, where we unpack some of those uh, articles that we see, that we've seen flourishing in, in kind of the popular media and really take those apart and call for more, more nuance. Another is a paper that I did with a graduate student, Trisha Maharaj, um, who interviewed Hindu women in, in Trinidad, who spoke about their experiences with menstrual practices. And the way they spoke about their their practices i mean they really rejected the idea that those practices are something restrictive or something stigmatizing but for them i mean not engaging in certain uh religious rituals um uh, not not doing religious lightings, not doing certain preparations, food preparations, I mean, all related to, to their religion. And for them not doing that on the days they, they menstruate was really an important part of their religious practice. And abstaining from, from some of those aspects of worship was part of their, their Hindu religion. And they really valued uh, these practices that had a lot of meaning to them. And they, they accepted that as part of what Hinduism means to them and their identity, their community, their understanding of, of their place in, in Trinidad as part of the Hindu diaspora. And I think listening to kind of those interviews and I mean, what the, what the women shared, I mean, really made me ask myself kind of, well, who am I to, to question how other people understand their, their religion? And it was really fascinating to, to see that and a real inspiration kind of how they reflected on, on their religion. And I think we need a lot more of that to really center the voices of, of people who have the actual lived experience of people who kind of talk about what menstruation means to them in the context of their community, their religion, their culture, rather than going in from the outside and, and kind of coming in with these preconceived notions of what what women's rights what gender justice should look like um, so I really appreciated that and I think we need to kind of I mean nuance our understandings in in many different ways 
I love the way you talk about this. And I feel like we could, we could talk for hours. Oh my gosh. It would be (laughs) so much fun. But one of the things that I'm interested in having you talk about is that many people, you know, listening in this conversation, maybe are realizing for the first time as you speak that there's an entire movement out there to shift the way our structures and institutions consider menstrual health and how that relates to the the equality Mm -hmm. of women. So can you talk about how menstrual equity at the structural level has evolved in the last decade from everything from laws and policies and taxes to the collection of data, maybe give us some examples to kind of break Mm -hmm. that down? Yeah, and I mean, I I share your excitement because I think all that, I mean, is relatively recent. And I mean, that we see changes in in laws and policies, uh, changes in in taxation and budgetary allocations. I mean, that that menstruation has become a matter of of public policy, I think is a huge step forward in really moving menstruation into that public sphere. So um, there's a lot that has changed. and I think hand in hand with with kind of what's happening at a structural level, policy level through through governments. I mean, there's also I mean so much more media attention. There's really a burgeoning menstrual art movement. I mean, we see shifts in in kind of advertising for menstrual products. I mean, just the fact that we are talking here and that there are podcasts that are entirely devoted to menstruation. Um, I think that's really exciting. And I mean, it's it's certainly true to say that the menstruation has become a lot more more public. But let me talk a bit about menstruation really as an issue of of policy making. And there we've seen We've seen a huge rise over over the last decade, starting with many countries in in the global south. I mean, Kenya was one of the first countries to to get active in in menstrual policymaking. I mean, similarly, India was one of the really early adopters, but also many, many other states. And I mean, I I did a project together with uh, the Water Supply and Sanitation Collaborative Council and a number of, of students students at, at Columbia University, where we looked at policymaking specifically in Kenya, India, Senegal, and the US. And that's not to dismiss other countries. I mean, there's a lot happening in the UK, in particular in Scotland and South Africa and Nepal and Argentina and many other Latin American countries, but we had to make some tough choices. So we looked at those four, four countries. And I mean, what we've seen is that there was in all countries, all, all those four countries. I mean, there were several policies that had been adopted specifically dealing with different menstrual needs. But what we found is that most policies really focused on kind of what's tangible. So they focused on on menstrual materials, menstrual products. I mean, their provision, their taxation, to, to some extent, their safety, to provide access for both specific groups in, in specific contexts, such as schools or, or prisons um, or jails. And I certainly don't want to want to dismiss that. I mean, I certainly, when I menstruate, I certainly want something to, to bleed on. So I think that's a great, great starting point. But I think we also need to acknowledge that menstrual needs go further than that. And when we think about all these insidious impacts of of menstrual stigma, it's not just these these tangible solutions, these tangible 
product-based solution that focus on products and facilities that we need. But we also need to, to shift how we actually think about menstruation, how we perceive menstruation. And I mean, there we saw a lot of shortcomings. I mean, there were many policies that had kind of this objective of, of raising awareness, of breaking the silence around menstruation, of improving menstrual education. But overall, what we found is that the focus was very much on menstrual hygiene education. So the message that, that menstruators get is this message of, of staying clean, of staying fresh, of managing menstruation and managing it away so that a good period is still the period that's not visible, that we don't know about. And I think that is what we need to, to challenge. And I think without challenging that, I mean, we might be able to, to put some layers on it and to, to address those immediate needs. But in the end, I mean, we'll, we'll cover up menstrual stigma in some, some layers of fluffy cotton or fluffy cellulose, but don't really address the, the stigma as such. And I think we need to challenge that feeling of embarrassment and really make clear that menstruation is nothing to, to be ashamed of. Going back to the beginning, that it really is a natural process. And not have this message that, that we need to get our messy bodies under, under control. Because I think, I mean, in the end, I mean, menstrual stigma is so invisible and so insidious that it's so ingrained that it continues to, to constrain policymakers, even when they seek to advance solutions for menstruation and seek to make menstruation an issue of public policymaking. So these constraints are still there. And I think becoming aware of them and then thinking about, I mean, how do we actually use those tangible solutions as an entry point to then think about, I mean, what else do we need? How do we comprehensively address menstrual health? How do we reform curricula to make sure that, that anyone working in the healthcare sector really has the information to, to address anything related to menstrual health? How do we create menstrual literacy so that people actually understand what's going on with their, with their bodies and know what's normal for them. I mean, know what level of pain is normal and when to, to seek um, out healthcare providers that we really accommodate menstrual needs at the workplace. So that's something that I mentioned earlier with someone being fired, basically because they are menstruating. I mean, that we get to a point where that is simply unthinkable, but where we actually provide the accommodations for, for people to menstruate wherever they are without having to hide it. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you, you have so much to offer. It's incredible. And I, I hope that those of you who are interested in learning more about all of this work and diving deeper into to what we're talking about today, that you'll check out the Palgrave handbook. Inga, if people want to, you know, check that out, uh, where can they go? And then where can they also connect with you to learn more about your work and follow you? 
I think the beauty of the of the handbook is that it's open access, so so anyone can freely download it, freely access it online. Um, I mean, it's on the Pelgrave website. I think as soon as you Google it, uh, the link, I mean, has a lot of uh, weird stuff in it. But as soon as you Google the Pelgrave Handbook of Critical Menstruation Studies, it'll take you to to that website. And I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, just start wherever you wherever you want to. I mean, there's so many interesting 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 chapters so many interesting contributions in there I mean really depending on on what you are interested in I mean if it's kind of trying to understand better how menstrual stigma works I mean there are chapters on that there's a lot on menstrual education there's a lot on trying to understand how culture shapes the experience of menstruation there are quite a few chapters on on advocacy activism and policy making and I think what what brings all the all the chapters together is not necessarily to provide all the answers because I don't think there are easy answers to to any of those questions, but really inviting the reader into the conversation, considering different perspectives, thinking about the apparent contradictions and tensions, and taking taking that work forward. I think that's the uh, that's the beauty of it. So, I mean, even though there are more than thousand pages, I mean, we certainly don't consider the handbook kind of to be the definitive answer. I mean, think of it as as an invitation to kind of join this, this menstrual scholarly advocacy activist community contribute to to that conversation and really take it forward because I think there's a there are lots and lots of open questions uh, that we haven't even thought about yet so there's a lot to to find there and a lot to to think about and then to find me I mean I would say I'm I'm semi-active on on social media so on Twitter it's simply at Inga underscore Winkler and then on my website there's most of my work available there and that's simply ingawinkler.com so I mean feel free to to reach out I'm always happy to to talk about menstruation and to to talk about the various different facets of it so I'm always happy to hear from people who like to do the same Awesome. Thank you, Inga. We'll put all of those links in the show notes for anybody who's interested in checking them out. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me and providing the space to, to connect more people interested in menstruation. Thank you. The Days for Girls podcast is produced by Days for Girls International. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit daysforgirls.org forward slash podcast. If you'd like to support the work we do on the show, leave a rating or a review wherever you listen, subscribe to the show, and share episodes on social media or with your friends. To learn more about Days for Girls and to join our global movement, please visit daysforgirls.org. Thank you for listening. See you next time.